So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, did anybody have any questions from where we were, I should say, last week in chapter 2? Apparently not. So we're going to go into 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. And read down through kind of what I hope we can get through this evening. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one should be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. And for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. And I don't know that we'll get into verse 5 tonight. Uh, verse 5 is, in my opinion, somewhat loaded, and but we'll, we may uh, just scratch the surface on it in advance. Verse 1 here of chapter 3, uh, as Paul's been up to this point reviewing uh, how they were with the Thessalonians and now how they still felt for the Thessalonians, he says in verse 1 of chapter 3 that when we were able to uh, endure it no longer. That's where the New American Standard has it. And he uses this word twice in this in this passage here. And it's a word meaning to be able to hold it in, to be able to, to, to contain a thing. And so it's as though Paul says, when, as long as I could contain myself, as long as I could kind of rein myself in, hold myself in, but I couldn't do it anymore. I just, I couldn't hold it in any, any longer. Uh, I thought that it was best to be left, be, uh, left behind at Athens alone. Now, if you were to go to Acts 17, you'd find out that leaving Thessalonica, Paul goes to Berea, the Jews in, from Thessalonica find out what's going on in Berea, and they go down there and cause the same problem there that they had caused in Thessalonica. And the, and the believers take Paul, and they take him down to Athens and leave him there. Paul leaves Silas and Timothy behind in Berea, for work. Now, if, if you just read Luke's account, you wouldn't know what went on in that. But here he's telling the Thessalonians, I thought it was best to be left alone in Athens. So I didn't ask any of the Bereans to stay with me. He didn't take Timothy and Silas with him. We know that from what Luke tells us in Acts. And so he gets to Athens. But when he left Timothy and Silas back there, it's not just that he left them in Berea, but in verse 2, he says, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen you. So apparently he leaves Silas behind in Berea for the work in Berea, but he sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica. And I think we mentioned this last week. He also apparently leaves Luke behind in Philippi. And the reason we know that is, is as you're reading through Acts, we have when Luke joins the group, we have we, 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 us, until they all depart from Philippi, and we don't have a we anymore. So Paul, uh, Luke apparently stays behind uh, in Philippi, which tells us that Luke had some maturity. Yeah, I mean, you don't take a wet-behind-the-ear novice and entrust them with helping care for some believers in a, in a new work, which essentially Philippi was. And that also says something about Timothy here. In fact, if we go back and look at a couple things about Timothy, let's go to Acts um, chapter 14. Acts 14, and when you get there, go to verse 6. 
Acts 14, verse 6. And if you look at just verse 5, it says, And when they and when an attempt was made uh, by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, verse 6, they became aware of it and fled the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, and the surround or to those cities, uh, Derby, the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So this is when Paul first preached in Derby. Fast forward now, let's move ahead to. Uh, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 and verse 1, And Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. Now notice he's already a disciple. When did he likely get saved? During Paul's first missionary trip when he stopped in Derby. He doesn't get saved on this trip. He, gets, he was saved on the previous trip. And Paul's been absent at this time for six months or a year. We don't know, but he traveled around in that area, had traveled down to Jerusalem where they'd taken care of an issue, and then they come back through all of these cities uh, carrying the message, uh, the letter that the church in Jerusalem had written about that problem. And he comes back and he finds this man, Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And verse 2 says, and he was well spoken of, or literally received a good testimony, or witnessed well about him, the brothers who were in Lystra and Iconium. So he's from Derby, but the other two communities that we saw, they'd say, wow, Timothy. Wow, Timothy's really distinguished himself. Timothy is really, this, this guy's really, you know, doing something. Um, it's, it's one of the things that... Um, well, what Paul's going to do then, let's, let's keep reading, and then I'll, then I'll add this comment on it. He was well spoken of them by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium in verse 3, and it says, And Paul desired that this man go with him, on to take him with him, and he took him and circumcised him for the sake of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek, meaning that he wouldn't have gone through normal circumcision. So he does this for that purpose. And while they were passing through these cities, then they were delivering the decree. But Paul wants to take Timothy with him. And again, I don't think he looks at him as, here's a, here's a guy that doesn't know anything and I'm going to train him. I think that he learned something during Paul's first missionary journey. He had been faithful and true to what Paul had taught. And so as a result, he distinguished himself. And I think the thing that's important in this uh, to, to take note of is that a person can, uh, people always want to know what's my spiritual gift? Uh, and you can, you can send to different places and you can get a spiritual gift assessment kit and answer a hundred questions and send it back in and they'll tell you. And I, I had a friend that did this many years ago uh, and he sat down and he says, this wasn't helpful. And I told him, I said, Jeff, I didn't think it would be helpful. I said, this isn't, I don't, this isn't the way you decide a spiritual gift uh, because he'd done this one through, um, through a major supposedly reputable uh, evangelical uh, seminary university. And they told him, well, your gift could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And he's like, that wasn't helpful. They just kind of threw out like a bunch of things and I still don't really know what my gift is. And I, I told him, I said, what have I, what have I always told you? How do you learn what your gift is? You start serving. 
you see needs that are present and you start serving in those needs. And you're going to find out as you serve, some of those needs you're going to do better at and some of the needs you're not going to do as well. God will still use you. It'll just, it just won't always, you, you just find that there's an area. And I think that that's what's significant here is that Timothy's distinguished himself so that it's not like Paul goes, hey, is there anybody that wants to travel with me and learn to be a, learn to be a minister? <laughs> yeah, I do. Okay, what's your qualifications? Well, I want to do it. Okay, come on, I'll teach you. No, it's that the other believers are going, this guy can do this. He's got a reputation. And I think that that's what's really important. There are, I, I, I've known lots of guys over the years that go to seminary or Bible college because they think that they're supposed to become a pastor and they study for the pastor of the ministry and they burn out in two or three years. And I really think the reason they burn out is what they did was they went and got training to do something that they're not really gifted for. And, and so they just don't ever serve after that. It's done. They're just over. That's it. They never serve. Whereas there's other people that maybe they don't even ever go to Bible college or seminary, but they serve. If there's an opportunity to serve, they take it, and they serve in that capacity, and they're faithful. Even if they don't have a, a title, they serve. Because, and, and the people believe that. So I think that we have men in our church. I'm always picking on Josh and Jim. There's other men, I think, that demonstrate this, but Josh and Jim, that have demonstrated this ability, and they don't stand there and go, when you say, hey, could you fill in? They're going, no, I just I don't know. You know, they're like, you know, I asked Josh for something recently, and Josh said, no, I need other plans. Okay, I get that. That's different. But he's distinguished himself as being one that handles it and cares about it and cares about other people understanding the Word of God. He did that a long time ago. Uh, and I think that that's a real important quality is that if a person isn't demonstrating the, the, the desire... There's a difference between a person that wants to study the Bible and a person that wants to study it and teach the Bible. There are lots of people that want to sit at home with their books and their computers all day and study it. But that's different than wanting to teach it and really taking the opportunities to teach it. And sometimes you teach it. I've, I've had times over the years, and I'm not bragging when I'm saying this, I'm just saying sometimes you take, you ever had times, Josh, when you've taught a Bible study and it's, you end up being one or two people, you know? And you still do it. You don't go, oh, if I don't have five, I don't do a Bible study. I've had times where I've had, I don't know how many years. It was myself and Stan and Linda. That was it. Oh, and Rebecca. Rebecca was there. Twelve, little 12-year-old Rebecca sat there at the table for years with the Bible in our Bible study. And you just, your people are faithful to that. Now, that has to do with, I'm talking about that work, but I think that that's true of any spiritual gift that you might have, whatever gift you might have. You demonstrate faithfulness to use that gift, whether it's, I think there was one year, the youth, I remember the youth group kind of started off, bam, and boy, there were these kids that came, Josh and Faye were part of them, they came and wanted Ben to, to lead the study, and that, and that went great for a while, and then I think things changed, and for a while there was, you had one guy, one guy that faithfully showed up, and I was encouraged by the fact that Ben would continue to study and meet with one kid. One kid. Some people would say, oh, we must be doing something wrong. We got one kid. How come we don't have 10? And it can be sometimes discouraging, right? It can be. You, Satan will take advantage and will discourage you when you don't see things. 
anyway, all of this, I'm getting a little preachy on this, but I think that there's a point to draw from this. Paul takes Timothy along because Timothy has demonstrated a reputation for being dependable. He's distinguished himself among these people as somebody that, as I would understand it, is if he's communicating the gospel, he communicates the gospel when he has opportunity. And when he's teaching people, he teaches them from what he knows and he's used it. Okay. And how long Paul was with Timothy when he first met him, we don't know. But remember, we've got other spiritual gifts going. It's not like Paul's the only one that knows anything and can teach it. He's the one that starts, but you've got people with the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge, and Timothy's benefiting from those. And then he's exercising, I think, uh, probably a teaching gift as an apostle. He's an apostle, but he's exercising the teaching gift. Everybody follows all this, right? Okay. So again, it's an encouragement to you. I really think every believer ought to be taking opportunities to serve in our church, not exclusive to our church. There are other believers that you can serve and serve with, but you ought to be serving. And as you're serving, you're going to see the opportunities that God puts in front of you. And some of them you're going to go, well, that didn't go so well. Even sometimes when you use your gift, things don't always go well. But anyway, uh, so it's an encouragement uh, with regard to that. Now let's go back over there to 1 Thessalonians 3. And he says in verse 2, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and interestingly enough, then he uses this, this very interesting statement here. He doesn't say here like he often does, our co-worker. A lot of times Paul says, our co-worker. But he doesn't say our co-worker. He, whose co-worker does he say? God's co-worker. And I think that this is one of the things, remember, this is, this is when he's writing this, this isn't very long after he picked Timothy up in Derby. We might only be six or eight months after that all happened, after he met Timothy down there in Derby and took him along with him. Because he spends some time in, Luke tells us he's, that Paul, that the lady that was causing Paul problems in Philippi, she did this over not a few days. So this was something that went on for a while in Philippi. It wasn't just like a week of her causing this problem. And that didn't start off right away. So Paul was in Philippi for, for a while, maybe a couple of months, maybe three or four months. We don't know before the problem arose. And so, so some, I'm just trying to get you to see some time has passed. And one of the things that Paul can say about Timothy is, rather than calling him, my coworker, he says he's God's coworker. He's distinguished himself as a person that works alongside of God. When God's doing something, Timothy's there participating in what God's doing. He's seeing the opportunity that God set before him, and he's working along with that. And so he calls him, interestingly enough, God's coworker, which I think is, and, and, and that's not, I hope you all understand as, we're, as, as I'm trying to make this point. I don't think this is, I think the mistake we make in churches is that we think that calling and all this stuff has to do with pastors, missionaries, has to do with every last one of us being gifted and every last single believer in the body of Christ serving in whatever capacity. And so he says, God's co-worker, and then he says, in the gospel of Christ, now, there's two possibilities when he says in the gospel of Christ. Most Christians, when they would read this, uh, they would just say, 
gospel of Christ is? Yeah. Yeah. And Paul could be making reference to that. However, in the Greek, it does say the gospel, the good news of the Christ. And I'm inclined to think that this, this is my inclination. If you'd want to disagree with me on this, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to tell you, in my opinion, I don't think he's restricting this to the gospel that you tell an unsaved person. I think he's really talking here about the good news about the Christ, which is not an altogether distinct entity from the person of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ as the head sharing his identity with the body. I think that I've got a, I have a believer that I know fairly well that has a real problem with this teaching. And I've been working on this doctrine. Just not, I'm, I, I don't want to get into an argument with this individual, and I don't know if this person's even interacting. But I thought it was good for me to go back and look at all these places where the Christ occurs. And it's not an altogether different thing. It's just that the Lord Jesus Christ is seen in such a unity with his body that he is sharing his identity with the body. And what does Paul say happens when a man and a woman come together? Two people. Man, there's her. No, one flesh. One flesh. He's looking us... As share, we share an, an identity. And I think, and sometimes the longer you're married, the more that identity becomes, you really see that. And what is the body of Christ, or what will the body of Christ be one day? The bride. But we already have this union with Christ. And so I think he's really here referring to uh, what I would call the Christ. And I think that that's significant because he's going to be talking what he's concerned that the reason he sends Timothy back is we're going to see this, the last phrase here of this verse, verse 2, to encourage you as to your faith. And again, the way it's translated in our English Bibles, we would just take it, well, you guys are, are you guys still have some faith over there? Or did you just kind of give up and start walking by sight? And yet that's not actually what he says. What it says is, to encourage you on behalf of the faith, yours. And I believe that when he says the faith here, like most of the places where Paul uses the faith, he's referring to the whole collection of promises that are the foundation of your Christian life. Promises regarding your spiritual enemies, promises regarding your the way you're able to relate to God, promises about your future, it's all these promises. It's what we've been looking at on Sunday morning. Started last year, put it on hold. Now we picked it up again. And God's made a lot of promises. And those promises really form the basis, the foundation of what a Christian life is. You live in the dispensation of grace by living by faith. Paul tells us that, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. That's why it's a dispensation that is in faith. It's not the dispensation of faith but it's in faith or by faith. And it's all these promises that God's made. These promises that because they're based on grace, God doesn't ever go, oh, Ben, yeah, good job. Sure, okay, you're ready for the promise. Tim, up. <laughs> nope, not today, because do you remember what you did yesterday? Nope, that promise, you're, you're going to wait a week until you get to cash in on that. It doesn't work like that. That's the whole nature of God's grace and his promises is that, it's not based on a performance thing. 
And so when we live by faith with regard to those promises, um, we, we, if you just, just as an example, because we were just looking at this two weeks ago on Sunday morning when we were reviewing this, God's made a promise for you regarding your sin nature, right? You remember looking at that two weeks ago where he tells us in first, um, or first in Galatians chapter five, verse 16, walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Do you believe that promise? If you do, then you're gonna count yourself to be a dead one to the sin nature and a living one unto God. If you don't believe that promise, you're just gonna go, oh, I'm just dead. I'm, I'm dead to the sin nature. That's not the same thing as believing the promise that you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We went over this several months ago, but we reviewed this two weeks ago uh, when we were doing the faith. There's another one regarding Satan. It says, resist the devil and the flee from Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? you really put on the armor and resist the devil, that he'll flee? If you do, then you put on the armor of God. You can actually put it on in faith that if you put it on, Satan really will flee. See, so there are promises that God has made to us that are the sub that are the substance, the foundation of our Christian life. And those two are really easy because they deal with our sin nature and Satan. And last time we were together, I said I didn't have one on the world system, and I probably no sooner got done than. Is that you? It was Holland. Came up afterwards and says, uh, um, out of 1 John chapter 2, the statement in there that, that John makes uh, about not loving the world, neither the things that are the world. But then he talks about the fact that the one that is doing the will of God, he'll be at ease into the age. That's a promise. Here's the chapter 2, the one I showed you was chapter 5. Oh, chapter 5. Oh, because what is it that overcomes the world is our faith. That's right. Okay, that's the way that's the way it all tied together. Okay, I wrote that down on my my note sheet for my anyway. But but so we even have a promise with regard to the world system, and we have promises that He's made to us that you and I can abide in Christ. And when we abide in Christ, when we're at ease in Christ, we can produce fruit, and we can produce fruit and well. More fruit. more fruit and even uh, more fruit. even much fruit yeah so you can have fruit more fruit and even much fruit i mean uh, you can really abide and there's fruit that's being produced in your life that's a promise from god that's a positive well i would say having freedom from your sin nature and satan uh, satan fleeing and 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 <coughs> being able to be at ease in the age and rather than doing what the world wants you to do those are all those are those are positive promises too, but that I can actually abide, I can be at ease in him. So these are all promises. And I believe when he says the gospel of the Christ, it's because a lot of those promises are related to who we are as part of the Christ. It's in Christ as part of the Christ that we died with him to the sin nature. It's as we're in Christ that that's where I have my righteousness. It's that's where I have the peace, which is shoes my feet. It's that where I have 
direct my faith to have access to God in Christ. I mean, think of that. Three parts of the armor of God are all directly, clearly tied. Well, even the fourth one, the helmet of salvation. Oh, even the, the last one, the, the utterances of God, which I'm still convinced in that context of, of Ephesians, those are those, that goes back to the beginning of the book. Those are those good things God says about you. All good things, not one or two. You got one or two right now. Faith, you work at it. I'll give you four. Keep it up for a year. I'll give you five or six. No, you got all of them right out the gate. And so he's extending all of these things to us. And they're things that are related to the Christ. The more you understand who you are as part of the Christ, as a believer, the better it is in the way you live the Christian life. The, it, the Christian life flows like it's supposed to. Uh, Again, I, without belaboring the point, I've just found too many times in my own life that the Christian life turns into a, oh, I shouldn't do that, that's bad, rather than, that's inconsistent with who I am as part of Christ. So, I believe when he's talking about the faith in here, and, and, and strengthen you and encourage you as to the faith. He's talking about the faith that makes up their Christian life. Now, what we're going to see as we go down in the following context, we're not going to get to that verse quite yet, but there, we're going to find out eventually there were some things that were missing, that in the short space of five, maybe six weeks at Paul's in Thessalonica, there's things he never gets around to teaching them. He runs out of time to get to some of these things. Um, so let's, let, let, let's just take, I want to take a look at a couple of these things that Paul is able to say. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4. And he actually talks, uh, well, I believe that, well, this is a reference to the sin nature. He says, um, verse 1, finally then, brothers, we, uh, we ask and encourage you uh, in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as actually you do walk, and that you, you would excel even more. For you know what, um, and I'm trying to look at this, this word that's translated commandments in the New American Standard is the word charge. It's not a commandment. It's a different term than is used elsewhere. It's a charge. We gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he goes on and explains about that. Now, obviously, he says, you already know this. We already told you this. So this was one of the things that when Paul was there, he had taught them to abstain from sexual immorality. That meant he had to teach them how to walk by the Spirit. He had to teach them, as we just saw over there, that Timothy was a worker with regard to the gospel of the Christ. He had to teach them who they are in Christ so that they could actually experience freedom. He does that, keep in mind, evangelizes, gets them saved, and then in that remaining time, actually takes the time to teach them who they are in Christ. Something, as I've said before, a lot of Christians don't get after being Christians for years. I was saved when I'm five. I don't learn about being in Christ till I'm 20. Now, and I've said this. Maybe it was taught and I didn't hear it, but I'd be very honest. I go back and I look at the churches I grew up in and such. That wasn't something people taught. You were just taught, be good, don't be immoral, and they tried to scare the daylights out of you to make you be good. 
That's law. Even though we were taught in our church, what? What? I don't know that he did. I just don't remember exactly what he ever taught about the Christian life on those things. He might have, but I, but I don't know exactly. I'm, I have to leave him alone a little bit because I just don't remember the Christian life teaching from him apart from studying the Bible, from teaching us to study the Bible and pray. But he goes on and he explains this to them. But this is one of the things that they didn't know. This is a promise. I mean, you, you've, got, you've got different kinds of promises from God. And th there is a promise here that I think a person needs to know. And uh, uh, let's go to verse 6. That no man then should uh, go, go beyond and defraud or take advantage of his brother in, the ma in this matter. Because the Lord is, notice this, the avenger in all of these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So he has to remind them that God will step in and, and, and take care of some things. And, but apparently there was something in there that he has to remind them of or that he has to bring up that, they, that I don't think that they knew uh, in this matter. Uh, look down in verse 13. Here's another thing. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What he's going to do is he's going to go on and talk about the Lord coming back. And if you look down in chapter 5 for a minute, in verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you don't have need of anyone to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So in that short space of time, Paul had taught them about the day of the Lord. He even taught them about the rapture. They were anticipating that. What he didn't have time to tell them is, what happens if a believer dies before the rapture? That's what they didn't know. And there's a promise for that. And it's a promise that comforts us. So that's something. And, you know, and... Let's put it this way. If you first start teaching people and you're going to teach them about the rapture, we probably hit the, those that have died because it's laid out so well there. But if, if this were the first time you were ever teaching people about the rapture and you didn't have the First Thessalonians 4 passage already written out, you'd probably just say, hey, the Lord's going to come back for us and we're going to get caught up to be with him. You, you, you teach John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's what you tell them. That's an exciting prospect. It's a faith thing. But if you're gone a little while, all of a sudden somebody dies and everybody's going, oh, Bob died. Did he miss out? They wouldn't know because he hadn't taught them. Paul shares with them the promise, guess what? <laughs> you guys aren't going to beat him. We're all going together. <laughs> They're going to be raised first and then we all get caught up. So that was a, another one of these promises that, that they needed to know. Also, here in chapter, in chapter 5, he explains to them about the coming day of the Lord, told them about the rapture, but I want you to look down at the end of the chapter and look at something that you find at the very end, and I think this is something I'm trying to get. I don't have my, these verses written on these, so that's why I'm having to do this. I just have these notes written, but verse 23, there it is. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify or set apart you entirely, and may your, uh, and, and in the Greek it's the spirit and the soul 
and the body be preserved or kept uh, um, whole without blame or complete without bl uh, and whole without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just trying to line the Greek and the English up. That's a promise that these people didn't know. That's why Paul has to share this. They know about the rapture. They know that he's coming back and they're going to get caught up. They know about the coming of these future events. But apparently one of the promises he didn't know is, guess what? Every last part of who you are is going to be exactly what God planned for it to be. Every last part. That'd be an encouraging thing. Because if somebody hadn't got around to explaining that and you knew that there's certain things that you struggle with or certain things that go on and you're like, oh, this, am I going to carry... Am I going to carry that with me? I'm going, to, I'm going to pick on Gary. He's not here tonight. Gary's asked me this question more than once. Will I have my scars in heaven? If you guys have ever been to the pool in the summer, you've seen Gary's, some of Gary's scars. Will I have those scars in heaven? I don't think so, because I think his body will be changed and will be glorified. And he says, but Christ has scars. Christ's scars have a different purpose than the scars that we bear. And I, our scars don't bear the same purpose that Christ's do. I hope that that's helped him to think through that. But this is one of the passages that demonstrate the same thing with the soul. I mean, how many of you, you're like, well, my body's good. I can, I can still run. I can still pick things up. I can bend over without hurting, you know, things like that. that the body hasn't, it hasn't set in yet. But you're so sick and tired of your soul and your emotions that get the better of you that when you're trying to do things, your emotions kick in and you just, oh, you have problems over here and you just do one way or the other. And to know, hey, you know, my emotions are getting like, we, we're not going to be emotionless. It's just that our emotions will never get the better of us anymore. <laughs> we will re if, if God wants us to cry for a reason that's appropriate to cry, I can't imagine what that would be because he's going to wipe tears. Maybe there'll be tears of joy. <laughs> you ever have those? I was crying last week when I, was, when I, wrote, a, I wrote a Facebook post, and it, was, it had to do with the things we talked about on Wednesday night, and I wanted to read it to her because some of it was about my wife and her uncle that shared the gospel with her when she was 16, and I'm reading that to her, and I'm not kidding, I'm saying, my wife testified, I was a bawling idiot in the kitchen. <laughs> I, Because I was just thinking, God, this is amazing. You saved this girl. Yeah. What? I'm not going to do it now, but <laughs> I, I kind of am, but it just, it really struck me. See, there's nothing wrong. There's appropriate place for tears, in a good sense, not tears of sadness, but tears of joy uh, in things like that. That's right, that's right, at the present time. In the future, however, he has the promise for people that he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes, and I would understand in that context. That's talking about the tears of greed. Yeah. So all of this, let's go back now over to chapter... Um, oops. What did they do? Let's go back over to, to chapter 3 and verse 1. And he's talking about encouraging you about the faith. So in other words, one of the things that, one of the things you sometimes as a believers, believers we need encouragement for with regard to the faith is there's a promise, maybe a couple promises that we don't know. And not knowing those promises or understanding those can appreciate the way we 
face life can affect. What did I say? Okay. I don't know where that came from. So it'll affect, yes, the way we, the way we face life. And then he goes on, he says in verse 3, now this is a promise that is sometimes hard for us to swallow. But he says, so that no one then should be, uh, in verse 3, so no one should be disturbed or shaken in this way by these afflictions or adversities, for yourselves know that we have been destined for this, destined, set down, placed, put in this place for this. One of the things that God's promised us as Christians is a promise from God you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Verse 4, for indeed when we were with you, we were telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction and it even came to pass as you know. And he's not talking just about himself. He's talking about everybody because remember there were people in the church that were drug out of their homes and drugged before the city rulers and had to put up a bond. And I don't suppose that those people drugged them gingerly and kindly saying, come on. I think they probably literally drugged those. The guys might have been falling down. I'm sure they were roughing them around. But he told them, he says, we told you ahead of time. It's, I, I really think it's one of the things in our in our modern churches. We don't like to focus. We don't like to tell people this. Uh, it's. Uh, I was thinking about this because I read a because I read a uh, uh, a thing that a, a church was talking about 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 hey we're a great life filled thing that we're going to focus on the promises of God and it's going to be exciting and it's going to be fun. And, and that's what we're, 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 we're selling church like we're trying to sell cars. Hey, don't you want to, don't you want to come to this church? Don't you want to be at this church? Don't you want to buy this great car? You'll have a water and the ride will be great and the trips will be wonderful. So is, is that really, is that the way we, is that the way Paul and Peter evangelize people was by telling them, how great it was going to be to be a Christian because it was going to be so much fun. We're going to have church volleyball league every Monday night. And for those that don't like that, we're going to have church crocheting group. And uh, last week, my daughter found a, or no, yeah, my daughter found a card with Batman on the front sitting in the Batcave crocheting. And he says, I do everything well because I'm Batman. I just thought it was hilarious. Anyway. So I had to make the crocheting thing. But seriously, I mean, the thing is, churches come up with all kinds of stuff because we try to sell people on the fact that church is fun. That's what we want to tell them. And we want them. And is that ever, do you ever find anywhere in the New Testament that that's the way they evangelize? They don't say, hey, come join us and you're going to get beat up. They didn't do that either. They told them who Christ was and what he did. And either they believed or they didn't believe, but they didn't then try to sell them so Paul, as he's talking about this, let's go back to Romans chapter 5. I want to just look at some of these places where Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 5. And we're going to go to verse 3. Romans 5 and verse 3. But Paul says not only this, that is not only do we boast in grace in this access, but we also... Uh, boast in our adversity, knowing that adversity 
produces patience. The very nature of the term patience means that you've got to go under something that's hard. And the easy thing to do is to change your character under it and not respond the way God wants you to. And so he says, we, we actually boast in that because then verse 4, because patience or perseverance as some of your Bibles have, is have, gives is proven character, the stamp of approval, and approval character produces hope. In other words, when God takes you through something and you come through the other side, you're then going, you have hope that God can do this with me. God can get something done. God, I had a friend many years ago that, that I saw him and he was just, uh, just, just, I mean, just as depressed as being be in his face. I said, what's the matter? He says, oh, nothing that a million dollars wouldn't solve. <laughs> and, you know, and we, we think that way as Christians. We think, God, you know, I'd be, I'd be okay if you just, just rain down the cash on me. Gold coins are good, too, you know? <laughs> you know? But it's, it's, facing, it's facing the fact that, hey, maybe sometimes it is hard. Maybe, maybe we got to tighten the belt. Maybe we got to go without. Maybe, whatever it might be, it's that he, he says there's a proven character, and that proven character is hope. And it's not that God has to say, hey, I can guarantee you, believe in me, good health. Believe in me, your job will go well. Believe in me, I'll rain down cash on you. There are people that teach all this. I think we all know that. Name it and claim it type churches. Puppies, flowers, and unicorns, yes. Uh, yeah. But he says, verse 5, And that hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been gushed forth in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit's there to guarantee that we get everything that God promised. He's the guarantee. And I would take that, I would say that has to do with what the Holy Spirit is doing. It has to do with the Holy Spirit's, in other words, how did God put love in your heart? He gave you the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the source. Because I think, because what he's going to tell us at the end of this section that's beginning here at the end of chapter 8 is nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And the guarantee on that is you've got the Holy Spirit. He's the seal that you can't get out of Christ. And he's going to finish in you what he started. Ephesians chapter 4. Anyway, under adversity. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter one. First Peter one. And he was talking in verse 5 about our future salvation. He says in verse 6, and in this then, you are very glad. Most of your Bibles have greatly rejoiced. It's a different word than joy. It's a word, being, it's a word that literally means to be giddy about a thing. You're giddy about this, even though now for a little... What? First Peter 1. First Peter 1 and verse 6. 
No, that's all right. So he says, in this you are very glad or giddy, even though now for a little while, if it's necessary, you have been put to grief by various kinds of temptations. Now, obviously in the context, the temptations are part of some hardships or difficulties. That's why he says you've been put to grief. So that, much like Paul said in Romans 5, the proof of your faith, more precious than gold. Why do you think he says that? He brings out a couple things where he mentions gold. I think it's because these people lost a lot of stuff when they were scattered. You read the first verses, these were scattered people, and they'd lost a lot of possessions. And he says, hey, your faith is more precious than gold, which perishes. You know what? It doesn't rust, but one day it's going to burn. Because <laughs> God's going to burn it all up. Even though, it's even though your faith is tested by fire, it may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says here, you're, you go through temptations because you go through hardships. And there's a proving process in that. There's a proving process in that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to use an athletic illustration here. But... Ben just finished wrestling season with his guys, and he doesn't just go in there and go, hey, you look like you'd be good at this weight class. I'm going to have you wrestle in there. And the, and the kid, you know, uh, has done horrible the whole season, never performed well, it's lazy, but we're going to do it. No, those, those kids have to work hard, right? And they have to demonstrate that they're up for the challenge of doing this. There's a, it's a proving ground. And that's what Paul's saying here. There's a proving ground, or Peter's excuse said, there's a proving ground. Just like Paul says in Romans 5, there's a proving ground going on. And it's a proving ground not for us to go, oh, good for me, but good for God. Because look at what he did. He got me through this. And that way it's different, because I don't care how good a coach is, you can't make a player good if they don't want to be. And some players, no matter how good they want to be, they're just never going to. They just may never amount to it. But thats I don't want to get sidetracked with that. What Paul is saying here is that God's really the one that's carrying us through this, but he also approves at the same time. Look in uh, chapter 4 here of First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Notice how he talks about this. What they're going through? What do you think of it? Think of a fiery ordeal. Unpleasant. <laughs> Unpleasant. Yeah. God. Somebody else say something. Yeah, hot and uncomfortable. Hot and uncomfortable. Yeah. Don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your. What's it say there? What's it say in verse twelve? For your testing, and that that testing there is. A temptation. It comes on there to put you to a temptation, uh, to bring out something, even at, or as though some strange thing were happening to you. But, verse 13, to the degree or even as you share in the sufferings of the Christ, keep on rejoicing. Notice this. He says rejoice. It uses a command here. Rejoice so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled, insulted harshly for the name of Christ, you're happy. That word blessed, I wish they would trans. I wish our modern English translations would quit using blessed. People don't know what it means. Translate it for what it meant. It meant happy. 
He says, you're happy, are you? Because the spirit of glory and of God is refreshing himself upon you. And people always go, why is he refreshed? I, I always look at it this way. If you're really thirsty and need some refreshment and you look out ahead and you think that you're going to come to some place and you're going to find a source of water or something to refresh yourself and you get there and there's nothing to be had, you're like, oh. But when you do find a place that you can refresh yourself, you go, oh. And I think that his point that he's making here that I think these people would have gotten easily is, you know, when the Spirit comes along and he finds a believer that actually is responding properly to this difficulty rather than just going, I don't like it, God. I don't want to go through it. None of us want to go through it, but we can go through it with joy, he says, and even be happy knowing that the Spirit comes along. When he finds a believer that responds well, the Spirit goes, ah, that's refreshing. He finds, it, so it, it even, there's a refreshment that God takes from this. and God doesn't need refreshment. <clears throat> but that's the way he describes what the Spirit is doing. I don't think the Spirit's refreshing you. I think it's this, he's giving us the picture that there's a refreshment that God appreciates when believers do this. And we're suffering in this way. But he has to warn them in verse 15, but make sure none of you suffers or a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a troublesome meddler. And that last word, troublesome meddler, if you remember when we talked about this uh, sometime back when we were going through quickly through first Peter, it means to stick your nose in everybody else's business. It means to be trying to tell everybody else how, how to do stuff. Now, if, if, if a person isn't doing things according to the word of God in their life, you have a responsibility as a believer to help them. But you know, there's a lot of other things that we stick our nose in that we have opinions about, and we have a tough time keeping our opinions to ourselves in things that are neither here nor there in the great scheme of things. And then he goes on, but if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed by this, but actually glorify God on this part. So he's saying, don't think it's a strange thing that you're going to suffer. Don't think it's strange. What's God planned for you in going through this? Now, Hebrews chapter 5, last one we'll look at here on these, Hebrews 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, this is what he says about God the Son, but this is what he's, if, and I think we've seen this in all these other passages, but he did this with the Son too. Even the Son in his human nature, he says, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Though every one of us in here has raised kids. Not all of us have raised boys, but... If you raise boys or girls, whatever, what would you say to them? Because you are my kid, you're going to do this. I don't know if your kids ever did that, but sometimes your kids say, why? They want to know why you're requiring them to do something. The saying when I was growing up that you used to hear is, because I said so, because I'm the dad. I tried not to do that with my kids. I tried sometimes, but sometimes you find out that you tell them, why? And they still want to know why. And basically the second why is, well, I disagree. So now why do I have to do it? And then that's when you say, because I'm the parent and I'm responsible for how you behave and how you're raised. And this is the way we're going to do it. Right? 
This verse 8, however, shows you that the term son doesn't mean little kid. It's a term of, it's a term that respects, it's a term that says something about maturity because he says, even though he was a son, he learned obedience. In other words, normally when you're an adult, you don't have to obey anymore. You're your own person and you're responsible to yourself now. But he learned obedience from the things which he suffered in verse 9. And having been made, no, not perfect, having been matured in the realm of his human nature, God the Son matured. And he matured by facing suffering. Is it the word for matured? It is, yeah. It's our word uh, teleao, to come to completion, to be mature. Yeah. God the Son's earthly ministry began with the devil tempting him for the space of 40 days. Not with just three temptations. Over the course of 40 days. So when we read those three temptations, those are showing us the gist of what Satan was doing over the space of those. And it says that Satan left him for a time. Meaning that Satan did come back and tempt him again at another time. We just, we're just not told about it outside of the time when Peter comes and tells him, Lord, Lord, be Because the Lord says, we're going to go down to Jerusalem. The Son of Man's going to be turned over to the, to the Gentiles. He's going to be spitefully treated. They're going to kill. They're going to uh, crucify him. He's going to be buried. The third day he's going to rise again. And Peter goes, Lord, be satisfied with the way it is. Don't rock the boat. We don't have to do this. And what does the Lord say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. See, Satan was tempting him again, trying to tempt him, in that case, to do something different. His initial temptations were about the kingdom and being king. That temptation, as Satan apparently has seen it, that there's something about this cross thing coming up here. Although Satan, I don't think, ever really understood the full purpose of the cross. He tried to keep Christ away from that too. And he matured. Now, why do we? the reason we came over here is because if Christ was matured by going through temptations, what's God going to do by taking us through hardships and temptations and difficulties? Mature us. Mature us. And none of us want to be in the nursery forever spiritually, do we? Do we really just want to sit down there and play with the little dolls and the little blocks and the little trucks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are days. Yeah, there are days we all probably feel that way. Yeah. But you do that for a little while and you're like, yeah, this isn't that much fun. You know. I don't think God lets you stay there. And I no, he, he's not going to let you stay there because he wants you to grow up. He wants you to mature. And so he's going to let you go through these things. He's going to let you go through these temptations. So with that then, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians, tie this off for tonight. Oh, no, I have verses written in the margin I have to go to. Anyway, I'll just, I'll make reference to these here if you want to write them down. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 22. Paul's telling these churches, he says that, that we enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. And he wrote Timothy, um, Acts 14, 21 and 22. Okay. 
Yeah. And then in 2 Timothy 3.12, remember what he tells Timothy? All those who even want to live godly will suffer persecution. Will suffer persecution. As Paul's writing these things here to, to Timothy in 1 Thessalonians, he says, I wanted Timothy to go back because there were some promises that you needed to understand to kind of solidify you, to help you, because I was concerned that as you were going through these things or very early in your Christian faith, <laughs> I was he's well, we're going to see this next week. I was afraid Satan might have come along and taken advantage of it, which I'm sure Satan was doing his best to try to do that. But we're going to see Paul actually gets good news. I was thinking of a, a statement on this because I, 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 I really found something that Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 to be true. Because there's a lot of Christians, I think we find. How many, when was, when was the last time any of you can say that you were persecuted? For your faith. Yeah. See, that's one of the things that I think sometimes we don't always, we don't, we, don't, we, we don't get persecution. And we so we look at this and we say, well, Paul said we're going to suffer persecution. But there's a type of persecution that Paul talks about in Galatians 4. Maybe we'll come back to it next week and talk about it. But I'm just going to hit this here at the end. And it's a persecution where he says the son of the bondwoman always, right down to this day, persecutes the son of the free woman. In other words, when you live by grace, you know, and this is the hard thing for us as Christians, you know one of the sources of persecution that Christians get when you really are living by grace, by the Holy Spirit, by that freedom, the people that cause you the most problems sometimes are other people that, are, that claim to be Christians but are under law. And it just irks them that you are living by grace. And he said, he says, Ishmael mocked and made fun of Isaac, the son of the free man. He says, it happens right down to this day, Paul says. The son of the bondwoman persecutes the son of the free woman. I would honestly have to say, that's the only persecution I know that I have experienced over the last several years. That I know that there are other people that I've dealt with that in my mind, I really think are Christians. But they, the doctrine of the grace of God and what he's doing and that security that comes with it just burns them. And they've never told it to me to my face. <laughs> but I've had other people say, well, this is the comment that they were making of you when they were drinking coffee because they just can't believe that you would say this thing. And, and it, that's... So I'm not getting the brunt of it most of the time, although when I hear it, when, I, when it comes to me, it still hurts. You're still kind of like, ah, man, I wish they would. Don't, you don't sit there and look at them like, I want to punch them, punch your lights out. If you're, if you're like me, you're like, man, I wish they'd get this. I wish they'd let go of that law. They would feel so free to, to stand in Christ and secure. And in fact, well, anyway, I don't need to belabor the point of, from that experience with me. But that may be one of the things that you run into sometimes is that when you're dealing with these 
with with other people that maybe the unsafe people around you aren't casting stones at you particularly. They may mock your character a little bit at times, or maybe a lot, and they mock you. I know of a I know of a believer that got mocked pretty good for being a Christian uh, in this area, um, and and I know of an unsaved person that was where this person was, and that unsaved person told me that person was outstanding in the way that person never retaliated in that situation, and that it, re it really left an impression on that on that believer. Okay. And so sometimes we may not we may not get that, but you know if you really hold to and people know that you hold to the grace of God and what He's doing with us today, you'll be surprised sometimes where problems will come through. Josh and Faith, they they probably know that all too well. Some of the things that they've gone through in that regard. Okay, I probably went a little bit long. But. Um, yeah, when it, but when it's from real believers and you know they're real believers, it, it makes it much difficult. I mean, I just, there's been many things, but like mm -hmm. when I left my job at HP, I just became a Christian a couple years before, and I joined the Jesus Home Project, and I, in my mind, I had this, I don't know, maybe it's like a butler, but I kind of had this vision of how it, like ministry would be, you know, so I, I knew 100% God wanted me there, and he orchestrated things that I could not have orchestrated and made it clear, because I decided I was going to leave my job. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I got to the point where God really just, you're going to, you just need to leave. And then I got this brochure in the mail, a recruiting brochure. And anyway, to make a long story shorter, this gal had sent it to me, and there's a post note on there. We're looking for engineers in the master studio. Give us a call if you're interested. I, and the only person in the world that knew I was going to leave my job was my best friend. I didn't tell family because I knew my dad wasn't going to believe me. You're going to throw, well, in fact, he later said, you're going to throw away your engineering career and become a beggar. You know? It's like, yeah, I guess I am, but. Um, anyway, no one knew, but God was making it clear, this is where I want you, and I knew it. And it turns out this gal knew I was an engineer because I was a supporter, and I filled out a donor form. And in there, I had written down, pray for me as I take classes at, in seminary. But, and uh, so she thought, oh, this guy's taking some classes, and he's an engineer. Even though I wasn't an audio engineer, is what they, what they needed. But it's where God wanted me. But So that was 100% clear. I knew it was where God wanted me. But there were things that went on in the process of getting there that I just never would have, you know, like the point where raising support was not something I wanted to do. And I didn't want to do it the strong arm method that Crusade promotes. They're pretty aggressive. You go through staff training with Crusade, and they were very aggressive, like a salesman, like you're going to push it. I couldn't do it. So I just was sharing with people, and I wasn't going to push them assist their arm. But God was raising up the money quickly for about six months. And then all of a sudden, it just stopped. Like, I mean, just, and I wasn't working any less. I was working harder, but it just, it's what, how God worked it out. But the, the guy, my supervisor, basically called me up once and he, he said, I, I have the authority to let you go. He was basically threatening to fire me if I don't get my act together. And I'm like, I'm doing the same thing I was doing before. You know, but just God wasn't raising it up that way because part of us, we met and there were things that God was doing that were parallel with joining that ministry. And so that, that the whole thing about the guy threatening to fire me, and I, in my flesh, I was like, please do it because I hate this. I hate the fundraising part of it. I knew God wanted me there, but I hated the, having to talk to people about money, you know. And, um, 
And I wanted to just tell the guy off, you know, and say, thanks, you know, I don't want to do this anyway, you know, <laughs> the fundraising part. But I, I knew God wanted me there, so I bit my tongue, and, I, and then when I got there, finally, after a year and a half, I think it was, maybe support, you know, and the first day at work, I sit down with another guy who's my immediate supervisor. The other guy was like the top guy in charge of the most people. And he, uh, and I, I know he's a believer. And I, I worked with the guy for years. I know he's a believer. But my first day, he sat me down and said, I, you know, because I didn't raise funds fast enough, you know, the way they, things slowed down. It didn't progress the way they were expecting. And they really wanted me there to get some work done, which is, I understand. But then they, the guy sat me down the first day and said, okay, I know the trouble you caused, and, and you're a troublemaker. And he gave me a bunch of verses to memorize. And I thought, I, just bit, I didn't say anything. I bit my tongue. I thought, Lord, you want me here, but I, just, I don't, I mean, I don't know why this is all happening. You know? And uh, such is a small example of how these are real believers. I know they're believers. And, but God was trying to use it because I need to know. <laughs> And, uh, and there have been many things since then where it's like, I, genuine believers are doing this, you know. And I know for a 100% fact God doesn't desire one believer to mistreat another. He doesn't desire. There's no way. It doesn't fit. That's not love, you know, to, to mistreat. But he allows it, though, because, you know, there's something in me that I'm too stubborn and, and strong. I'm not going to let go of this. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to become stronger or whatever because... I'm just too entrenched in doing it this way or thinking this way or feeling this way and he's going to rip it out of my hand you know and kick me in the rear so I fall flat in my face and I'm like okay God I want something different I, I can't stand this the way it is you know so so I, you know it's one thing you expect like unbelievers it's almost like you'd be like you could rejoice like okay thank you Lord that you know this unbelievers persecuting me for, for genuinely being a believer you know, that's just because I'm a jerk you know but um but like it, when it comes from believers, though, it's like I, I still can't. It's hard to reconcile, you know, because mm -hmm. like, I know God doesn't desire it, but He allows it, and He's going to use it, and and I, He knows I need it, you know, even though this is the person that should be doing the exact opposite, but they are my enemy, you know, basically for practical purposes, um, and they're going to destroy me if I allow them to. But God doesn't want that to happen. He wants me to change and to make things different on my end, you know, because He's allowing it for that reason, you know. But my shoe does not feel good. You almost, you know, you expect it from, you know, Paul getting stoned by, by unbelievers or whatever, dragged, you know, beaten, whipped, scourged. So, or like the guys that were in prison, they were rejoicing and singing. It's like almost like, yeah, you expect it. But you don't expect it when it's from, you know, where they're supposed to be the opposite. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So he's like, it's. Well, anyway, you guys, I'd love to hear like some of the part of your ministry experience. But God allows it. I don't think He desires it. And just, just to take what he said and just add an encouragement. If you ever find yourself at odds with another believer over something, remember they're a brother. And I think take like from what Edward's saying, and treat them, treat them with kindness. You're, you're, it's kindness is always appropriate. 
freedom of kindness. You can still be good. Yeah, you can point out where there's something. But remember, like Paul says, if you got a, just as an example, if you got a brother that wants to live under law, you give him two warnings and then that's it. You, you, don't, you don't keep hammering on it. <laughs> you, you just back off. But you can still treat the, if, and that's a hard thing because it goes contrary to our flesh, doesn't it? And yet I think, I'm listening to Edward and I'm thinking, man, I've probably been that, pardon me, I've probably been that jerk that's treated people like that at times, you know, getting really frustrated. Yeah. So. Put a happier ending, Judge. Yeah. So, like, my, right. my immediate supervisor says, you know, I know you're a troublemaker and memorizes verse about Christian character, and he, he gave me all the garbage work that, that no one else wanted. He was purposely trying to punish me for about uh, maybe six months. Like, give me all. I, I call myself the garbage man because any garbage work that no one else wanted to do, he assigned me to do, and he just was kind of like trying to put me under his thumb to put me in my place. And I just went, I just did whatever he said, you know. I just, I didn't argue with him, didn't talk to him about it, I just did whatever he asked. And after about a year, every year we had a review, like a yearly review with our supervisor to make, tell you how you're doing. And he, he said, you know what, I had you all wrong. I thought you were going to do it this way, and you didn't turn out to be the way I, I thought. But I, I didn't say anything, but I was thinking like, well, you didn't know me. You just assumed because... Things didn't work exactly the way you guys expected it should work because God was doing something different in my life. <coughs> so it turned out it was good then. I mean, he it was different. But uh, for a while there, I was kind of like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> Which that's that's a really good testimony that the best way to respond is the way we live. So, thank you for sharing that.